0: This is They Create Worlds, Episode 93 Books Beware.
1: If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look in a place where people.
0: Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Right after the heels of Summer Games Done Quick, we will regale you with a book, because your eyes are probably just tired from just watching all of those video games. So we're going to just assail your ears with an audio
1: rendition of all the books in video games. (laughs) Right. Right. In this case, uh, we are finally, for those of you listening to this in (laughs) sequential order, going to be discussing the very, very short-lived phenomenon known as bookware. Something that I don't think a lot of people are aware was actually a thing, briefly, in video games. Everyone knows about the big interactive movie fad that happened in the early 1990s when there was seen to be a collision between the interactivity of video games and the production techniques of Hollywood. But there was actually a period before that where the same thing was happening where book publishers were seeing what was going on with interactivity on computers, and were like, hey, this could be a future for books. And so you had kind of a similar thing happen, where you had a blending of computer game companies, book publishers, authors, all kind of coming together to try to create these great interactive narratives that were text-based, and just as with the interactive movie thing, that didn't really... Actually work in the end, but it's, it's an interesting little topic that doesn't get a lot of attention, probably the, the most attention, and quite frankly, where a lot of my knowledge of this comes from is uh, from my friend Jimmy Mayer of the uh, Digital Antiquarian blog, who is particularly interested in text adventures and so explored this whole bookware thing in detail. But that's a lot of reading, so we're going to sum up some of that stuff and add a couple of things that he didn't talk about through the audio medium on this here podcast.
0: Well, sounds good. And as you said, this doesn't relate to the whole Sillywood era that we covered before. This is actually something that's
1: before the Sillywood era that was sort of like proto Sillywood. Sure, in a way. Because uh, we may recall that, of course, in the late 70s and early 1980s, when the whole personal computer revolution was getting started, the graphical sophistication on a lot of these computers was not very great. Uh, Computers like the TRS-80 didn't even do real graphics. They did character-based graphics. The Apple II did real graphics, but particularly in the very early days, those graphics were very limited because early Apple II computers shipped with very little RAM. You might only have 4K or 8K of RAM on your computer, which meant that you had to stay in what was called low-res mode for your graphics because you couldn't have a screen that was particularly high resolution because, as we've talked about in some of our technical episodes, putting graphics on the screen takes memory. And uh, the Apple II had a bitmapped screen, which means that you were individually controlling each and every pixel that you were turning on and off. So if you only had 4K or 8K of memory in your computer, you couldn't have many pixels. So you had very large, blocky graphics. The Apple II obviously had more graphically sophisticated games than that as time went on, and that's because RAM came down in price. The uh, Apple II Plus was released. People started putting as much as 48K into their Apple computers. So then you could use the computer's high-res mode, which uh, is not anywhere near what we would call high-res today, but was high-res for its time. The point of all of that being that it was very hard to do a very engaging graphical game in the late 1970s on these early computer platforms. So text as a medium and as a platform for games was very important. That's why you got the rise of the text adventure, which, of course, had already existed on many computers even before it had existed on microcomputers for much the same reason. We've talked before about how even though a mainframe or a minicomputer has a great deal of memory, By the late 1970s, these computers were being time-shared, which meant multiple people, dozens, even hundreds of people, were using the computer at the same time, which meant that that memory was being parceled out in very tiny slivers to each individual. So, again, you couldn't do graphically intensive things even if you had a graphical terminal, which, A, most computers didn't, and B even those computers that did most of those were character based as well which meant that they didn't have a, a great deal of graphical capability that's where you get the text adventure and we will no doubt cover the text adventure in its entirety in more detail at some point in the ongoing run of this podcast but when we talk about bookware we're not talking about all text adventures all bookware are text adventures all text adventures ...are not bookware. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. The text adventure grew out of Dungeons & Dragons. The very first real text adventure, there were some other text programs before that. There was Eliza, where you could play around with the parser. There was something called Wander that was kind of a proto-text adventure, but was written in about 1974... But when we think of adventure games, you know, it starts with adventure. That's the whole reason they're called adventure games, is because they're actually named after the progenitor of the genre. Adventure came out of two activities by the original author, Will Crother. One of those was his caving. He, he liked uh, exploring caves. And the other was uh, Dungeons and Dragons, which he was playing at the time. With Adventure, what he was doing was merging his love of cave exploration and his interest in Dungeons & Dragons to make this game where you were exploring this underground space, collecting treasures, solving a small number of puzzles, and uh, occasionally having wandering random creatures that you had to deal with. Most of the early Adventures were kind of done in the same vein as that game. They were usually treasure hunts. They were usually taking place in underground areas, dungeons, caves, fast forgotten kingdoms, what have you. And the plot was minimal in these early games. I mean, adventure doesn't even really have a plot at all, even something like Zork which was much more complex than Adventure and kind of carried the mantle of Adventure into the microcomputer and uh, started making those programs popular on microcomputers. There's a little lore in Zork, sort of, uh, as those games go on, but there's really not a lot of plot. It's, It's really all treasure hunts. So this is about as far from the concept of, bookware as you can get, because implicit in the idea of bookware is that it is following some of the conventions of books, and one of those conventions, unless you're getting into really crazy avant-garde stuff, is that books have plots. So it's only really in the early 1980s that you start getting a little more sophistication in text adventures you get a few attempts at more complex happenings going on. Certainly Infocom, the great text adventure master that put out Zork and many other games, was a big part of expanding what the text adventure could be. In 1982, they did a game called Deadline, which was a murder mystery game. So it wasn't so much a gathering treasure kind of thing anymore. It was more of a uh, traditional whodunit And they tried some interesting stuff there, like having other characters move around on their own and that kind of stuff. Whenever that was tried in Text Adventures was incredibly buggy. It didn't always work right. You don't have objects. It's not graphical. You don't have objects that you're tracking. It's not object-oriented kind of hard to move stuff around when all you have is is text the game's basically having to keep track of i guess states it's keeping track of rooms and it's keeping track of individuals and it's keeping track of states which is a lot for a simpler microcomputer code of the of the time to to really keep going but you know you had some games with plot like that going on and you even had some literary stuff going on an Australian publisher actually got the rights to the hobbit and in 1982 put out a Hobbit text adventure, which was very complex for the time. It had some graphics, you know, pictures, still pictures, still a text adventure because all of your interaction was in text. And it tried to have characters moving around all over the place doing their own thing, and it did not work at all. At all. It was a very broken game. Thorin would continuously want to sit down and sing about gold and not do much of anything else, and It was an absolute mess, but it was extremely popular because it had that Hobbit branding on it. It probably sold uh, about a million copies, all told, across many, many different platforms, which was insane for the early 1980s. I mean, that was an insane number of units for a computer game in the early 1980s. So clearly there was something there. This computer game medium was becoming more robust. It was becoming more popular, and interactivity was something that looked very interesting. And so some of the major book publishers started taking notice of this and thought, well, maybe we can do something in this field. The first time that a book publisher actually got involved in computer games, to my knowledge, was actually all the way back near the beginning, uh, 1979 the book publisher Hayden, which was a very, very big publisher, decided to experiment with getting involved in computer games. We're not talking bookware at this point. But the other thing that we have to remember is that in the very early days, and we're talking very early, we're just talking the late 1970s here, disk drives were not yet common. By 1980, you know, pretty much everyone was getting disk drives for their computers. And when we're talking
0: about disk drives here, we're not talking about your hard drive or something like that. We're talking more like a floppy disk drive. This is before hard drive. This is before USB sticks, all sorts of things like that, that we have ubiquitous today. You had everything and your life on a floppy disk that was actually
1: floppy. Yes, a five and a quarter disk. Hard drives were really not a thing for most people until the very end of the 1980s and the very beginning of the 1990s, because those things were expensive, (laughs) is basically why. So, right, no computers had, no microcomputers, I should say, had hard drives in these days. When we're talking about disk drives, we're talking about floppy disk, and uh, we're talking about floppy disks that are not particularly high capacity, so... For more complex games, you're talking about having four or five discs and insert disc two, insert disc five. Those were fun times. Oh, yeah, especially when you had 756K floppy disks back in the day. Exactly. We're not even talking about the uh, relatively luxurious amount of memory afforded by a 1.44 megabyte high density three and a half inch floppy. What a serious (laughs) floppy connoisseur. That's right. But we're talking even before floppy disks now uh, were very widespread because disk drives of any kind were ridiculously expensive back then. So putting programs into computers was done via cassette tape or via just typing in programs yourself. Uh, You know, there were a lot of type in listings in magazines, early magazines like Creative Computing and Soft Side. You also had uh, books. Uh, we talked about 101 basic computer games when we were talking about kind of the spread of, of early mainframe and mini computer games. You had people actually publishing books just full of type in listings as well. So Hayden saw this and it's like, hey, you know, there are programs in magazines, there are programs in books. This seems like something that we should be involved in. We publish books. <laughs> Yeah, so they decided to start releasing their own books of programs. Uh, The most prominent thing that they published uh, was the early chess game Sargon, that was one of the very popular early chess games in the late 70s and early 1980s. Uh, They didn't create it, it was independent developers, but they published it. And then they very quickly moved from that to starting to offer programs on Disc as as well or on cassette tape and then on disc as well. And they ended up buying out uh, one of the early major publishers, a company called Programma, continuing to run that for a few years. So that was kind of the first time that a book publisher got involved in this new area. But, you know, we're still not talking about bookware. So it's kind of this confluence of publishers are looking at this as being something similar to their own business because games are coming out in magazines and books. And we do magazines and books. And then, you know, it's relatively simple from there to get into tapes and floppy disks. So you have that going on. You have text adventures being done that are becoming a little more complex and a little more literary. And even sometimes, as in the case of The Hobbit, acquiring some license to an actual already existing literary work. And so when you put all that together, you get a situation where book publishers are like, okay, this is something that I can do. This is uh, an area that we have some expertise in. So in in the mid-1980s, most of the major publishers actually started their own little computer game divisions. Random House had one. Bantam Books had one. Simon & Schuster had one. These are some of the big publishers in the field. Their works were usually pretty slight and not very interesting. We're really not going to discuss what was going on on that side of things, kind of the book publisher side of things. But at the same time that the book publishers were coming into games from that end, you had game publishers that saw the potential in interactive fiction to be something greater. And we're starting to move in a more literary direction as well. And that's really what we're going to focus on in the rest of the episode.
0: So what would be the first game that came out that would be classified as bookware? What's the first thing where a publisher said, all right, I saw all this stuff that came out before. I want to put out my own game. Hey,
1: author, give me Thing. Right. So the the first games of that type, of that specific type... Because like I said, I mean, The Hobbit, you could probably call bookware, and that was 1982. But uh, of the type that you're talking about, that's something that definitely really dates to to 1984. And there are a few different things that came out in 84. Certainly the most celebrated of those came out from the company considered to be the true masters of interactive fiction, Infocom, and that was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Douglas Adams. I love that
0: book or that game actually i just loved it all
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> well there was that movie once we don't talk about that <laughs> I, i'm i'm just pointing out that there is a line it can be crossed and it can make jeff cry
0: well the only thing acceptable from that
1: is marvin and the book <laughs> yes Right. Hitchhiker's Guide. Because Douglas Adams was a very early adopter of computer technology. I mean, he was, he was a technophile. He was somebody that appreciated this stuff. And he was a fan of Infocom text adventures. He had played Zork and all of those follow-up products. So Douglas Adams had been playing Infocom games, and he was... Fairly impressed with them, and certainly more impressed with them than uh, any of the games coming out from some of the other smaller publishers where, where the writing wasn't quite as good. By this time, Infocom was incorporating more and more plot into their games. I mean, I would not call the early Infocom games kind of plot-first kind of games. I mean, the puzzle-solving and everything was always a bigger part of it, but there had been a few games that had had a little more plot in them as well, like Mike Berlin's Suspended being an example. And so he was kind of impressed by this and happened to mention this to his publisher, Simon & Schuster, that he was kind of interested in what was going on in this space, At the same time, and it's not exactly clear whether this happened because of what Douglas Adams said or if it's just a coincidence and Simon & Schuster was already looking in this direction, but this was right at the time when the publishers were looking to get involved more in this emerging computer game field. So Simon & Schuster actually had discussions with Infocom about acquiring the company and turning that into its computer game publishing arm. Again, were they already looking to do that before Adams talked to them, or was Adams talking to them what made them go do that? We don't know, and it's really not important. The important thing is, is they were coming to and saying, hey, maybe we can buy your company, and oh, by the way, our hot new science fiction comedy writer, Douglas Adams, would be very interested in working with you guys. And so that's how this connection was made. Ultimately, Simon & Schuster does not buy Infocom. They decide to create their own little division, which does some simple Star Trek stuff, because Simon & Schuster was the publisher of the Star Trek novels in those days. They do a a few rinky-dink Star Trek games and a couple of other things, none of which really matter in the grand scheme of life, but they did provide this introduction between Infocom and Douglas Adams. So Adams ends up collaborating with uh, one of the implementers, as uh, Infocom called their adventure writers, uh, Steve Moretsky. Moretsky was definitely one of the more accomplished implementers at the company. He had a sense of humor that was very similar to Douglas Adams' sense of humor, and he was a cut above some of the others in terms of his writing capability. He's not like a, a genius novelist or anything, but you know, a cut above your typical computer programmer is now also writing a story kind of guys. Uh and he was a pretty good puzzle designer too. I mean he was definitely one of the uh the top flight Infocom guys. And so Moretsky and Adams end up working together to create the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy game. And this was a true collaboration, which is interesting. We'll be going along and we'll be seeing a few other examples of authors being involved in the creation of text adventures. Uh, but most of the time, they are just maybe providing a broad outline. Maybe they just take part in a single brainstorming session and give a couple of ideas. Maybe they're just put out on the, on the promotional tour to answer some questions and they didn't really do anything with the game at all. It's just, you know, there's a great name to have on the game. But in this case, it was a true collaboration between Moretzky and Adams. It's kind of interesting because from all accounts, uh, from what we know, Moretzky was kind of hewing rather closely to the book. Like the very first part of the game, for instance, is very linear. I mean, it doesn't follow the book exactly in the sense that you do some puzzle solving things that that aren't found in the book. But the beginning of the game is very linear, very straightforward, very point by point through poor Arthur Dent getting his house bulldozed and getting saved by his friend Ford Prefect and ending up on the Vogon ship. And a very important note.
0: There's a thing at the very beginning you must get. Oh yeah. Or else, oh yes, you cannot
1: beat the game. Early text adventures were notorious for that kind of thing, where you would end up with uh, in what's usually called a zombie state, because you can keep playing the game, even keep playing the game for hours, but you have already lost and you don't even know it. And yes, uh, <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide has a very infamous example of that. Was it the pill? I, f- I forget which item it was. There was something in the mailbox that you need to get. Oh, yeah.
0: I don't remember yeah. what it was, but I recall that you had to get something out of the mailbox
1: before you left Earth. Yes, that is correct. Or the game was unwinnable. You were essentially in a zombie state. Yeah, I mean, that kind of thing was pretty notorious. It wasn't the only game that did that. Those are the kind of design things that just wouldn't be acceptable today, but it, <laughs> it was a different time. So, Moretsky was really focused on the plot, and it was Adams that was actually the one that was trying to make it more chaotic, more nonlinear, and really take advantage of the medium and subvert the medium. There are points in the game where the parser, for those of you that didn't grow up on text adventures, the parser is your main form of interaction with a text adventure. You type words in, commands get this, look for that. And then the parser goes through the list of nouns and verbs and adjectives and adverbs that are allowable within the game and parses the text that you've typed in to see if it fits one of the acceptable combinations that causes something to occur. And then if it does, something occurs. And if it doesn't, the parser says, I don't understand what you're talking about. Douglas Adams is the one that had the idea that the parser actually lies to you at certain points in the game. It doesn't tell you the truth about what's going on. At least in regards to parsers,
0: this is something that is a very big problem in computer science and has been going on ever since the creation of programming languages. The parser in text adventure games is really a very, very simple programming language I'm telling the computer Mm -hmm. to do something. If I don't insert the correct commands into the computer, it's going to throw up its hands and go, I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean you want to open the door? We don't open the doors here. You must ajar the door in order to make it work. (laughs) That's because you have some engineer who goes, you know, if I'm going to be tricky and sneaky, we're not going to be open. You have to ajar the door. You must. Find an egress. You can't just leave. (laughs) You can't just climb. You have to exit. Words like that. So the problem is is that you have a need for essentially a thesaurus for all the synonyms to various different words. And with these older text adventure games, the amount of memory we have in order to have that thesaurus is really, really small. So your subset of allowed words is really, really small. I remember playing Laser Suit Larry. Why <laughs> a 12-year-old would be playing Laser Suit Larry will not get into that. But the important thing is, is that you try to play it and the parser goes, I don't understand what you're saying. Get in the taxi. Enter the taxi. Climb in the taxi. Oh, I'm just about to type get in. Okay, fine. Whatever. You bloody parser.
1: Right. So the parser, which was the main form of interaction in a text adventure, could be a very clunky interface. And riffing off of that, the Hitchhiker's Guide parser actually lies to you sometimes (laughs) about what's going on or about what you can do. Kind of a subversion of this idea that parsers are difficult to uh, work with sometimes. And that was entirely uh, Douglas Adams' idea. That was his idea to kind of subvert He was actually the more daring of the two, which uh, is unusual in these author-programmer combinations. Usually it's the author that doesn't really understand the limitations or the unique capabilities of the computing platform, and it's the programmer working with him that has to bring him along and kind of expand his mind. But uh, in this case, it was Adams doing a lot of that. Of course... uh, trying to get this game together as a collaboration did create some problems because games need to be released games have deadlines what
0: deadlines for games that's heresy that's how we can go down the line all the way to having
1: bad games put out by those evil corporate overlords (laughs) i'm sure you're familiar with douglas adams's view on deadlines what deadline there is no deadline (laughs) Well, no. The famous quote from Douglas Adams is, uh, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing noise they make as they go by. Douglas Adams was notorious in his life for never finishing projects on time, for just getting caught up in other things and lacking inspiration or this or that and never finishing things. It was a bit fraught at the end, getting the the game finished. They finally had to lock him up (laughs) in a hotel to kind of get the final part of the game worked out with Moretzky, but they did. They finished it, and it was released in 1984, and it was an absolutely massive hit. It sold a couple of hundred thousand copies, which was humongous for the time, and really stands as one of the best, probably the best example of. Of a bookware product. And really, no surprise that the best example would come from Infocom, which was really leading the way in text adventures. It's not a perfect game. We talked about that one zombie state already that you can get into. It is generally considered to be one of the absolute hardest text adventures ever made, full stop, period. It's hard.
0: Yeah, this game was insanely hard. I've tried to leave Earth, but. I die. A lot.
1: <laughs> and I just give up. Yeah. After that, it gets even harder. I mean, the most infamous puzzle in the game, and I won't go through the whole puzzle, but the most infamous puzzle is the Babblefish puzzle. Once you get on the ship, on the Vogon ship, of course, in the book, Ford just hands him Babelfish, and it's like, hey, stick this in your ear. But in the game, there is actually a series of puzzles that you have to solve to be able to corral the fish to, to get it in your ear so that you can understand language. I mean, it's crucial to continuing in the game. And there is this very complex and precise series of things that you have to do in order to get that babble fish. And that is the spot that separated the uh, overly intelligent people from the rest of us, <laughs> the super geniuses from the rest of us. There were even T-shirts made, you know, by people saying, "You know, I solved the babblefish puzzle in <laughs> *Hitchhiker's Guide*. I mean, it's it's notorious. So it was a hard game, but it was a clever game. It the way it did things like subverting the idea of a parser and the unreliability of a parser were really quite ingenious. The kind of metaphysical idea, the philosophical idea of tea versus no tea, and having both tea and no tea at the same time, which was part of another puzzle, was, was really quite clever and subversive. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on in that game, uh, but it is also very hard. But yeah, that's one of the very first examples of this bookware thing, and, and also one of the most successful. It's kind of all downhill from there. Kind of funny to think that the most
0: mind-numbingly hard thing as far as an adventure game is the high
1: point, not the low point. <laughs> well, you know, text adventures are kind of a weird genre. I mean, they're dead today other than very niche fan communities. I mean, there, there are kind of homebrew text adventures that are still made. But as a true commercial medium, they died out in the early 1990s. And I mean, they were no longer even before they died out. I mean, they stopped being really relevant by the end of the 1980s and then limped along for a few more years. It attracts a certain kind of person, I think. So when we look at text adventures today, we look at all of the horrible things that they would do to players bad parsers, nonsensical puzzles, dead-end states, uh, zombie states where you failed the game and you don't even know it for several more hours. We look at all that stuff and go, ugh. We're very happy that LucasArts came along, and it's not so much that their games were graphical, though obviously, you know, the graphical adventure is what killed off the text adventure, but it's Because, I mean, Sierra had graphical adventures, too. It's not that LucasArts was graphical. It's that they were fair. They didn't kill you every five seconds. They didn't let you get into zombie states most of the time. And so when we look at adventure games today, we expect them to be fair and we expect them to be logical. And those are good things to expect. Games should be fair and logical. (laughs) They can be hard, but they should be logical. I think for people that were playing text adventures in the 1980s, part of the fun was figuring out how the system worked, figuring out what the parser would accept, what the parser wouldn't accept, figuring out how all the pieces fit together, even if they fit together illogically, and spending hours upon hours upon hours just trying to to solve this game was considered fun and it wasn't necessarily considered annoying when you got to a puzzle that didn't make sense or you realized that you have to replay a few hours because something fell apart they weren't meant to be played in necessarily marathon sessions. They were meant to be played for a few hours. Then you go away, you do something else, you mull things over in your head and you come back to it and you're like, oh, OK, let me try that now. And you get the this rush of excitement because you've thought of something else new to try and you go back and maybe you only play for another 10 minutes as you try this new thing you're doing and then go away again. But, you know, it was kind of a different way of interacting with a computer game, I think. I think it's very much the case
0: of the journey, not the destination. I, I really right. enjoyed the journey. A lot of games back then were a lot slower paced. Life was a lot slower paced than it was now. Right. And it's really the case that with a lot of games back then, you would spend the time and the thought process to take out graph paper and map out that dungeon, that mm-hmm. series of events. You can go, okay, I know... Here, I have these options. I know here, I have that option. And I imagine there's people with notebooks that have, okay, I'm sitting down playing this text adventure game. I have a notebook dedicated purely to that. What parsing things oh, yeah. work? What choices work? What items are available? What haven't I might have considered or tried? Let's try these different combinations and enumerate through them until we come to some sort of advanced
1: plot. Exactly. And objectively speaking, would it be better as a game design to have all of those things and have the game design be logical too? I mean, probably yes. But, you know, in this time period, it wasn't looked upon that way, especially since you did not have a great deal of great examples. You didn't have Secret of Monkey Island to compare Zork to. I mean, in the context of the times it really worked, some of these games are really difficult even if you're the type that would be drawn to and be interested in a, in a text-only game and, and not mind the fact that there's no graphics. A lot of these games are, are difficult to kind of get into and kind of understand the appeal of today because we have so many examples now that game design has become more professional. We have so many examples of really well-designed games, and it's hard to go back to a time when even the quote-unquote good game designers uh, were maybe not thinking through everything that they were doing because it was a new field and we were still discovering what it meant to be a good game design. But at the time, that kind of difficulty and illogic and repetitiveness even of having to start over the game, you know, that was not necessarily looked upon poorly by the people who were interested in in these kind of products. So yeah, Hitchhiker's Guide is is a game that is is very difficult and would probably be very frustrating to most modern gamers. But at the time, I mean, it was considered a a stone cold classic and it sold very, very well. If you want
0: to play it, I will throw into the show notes a link to the BBC 30th anniversary version of it where you can play. I will also throw in a walkthrough. You will want to have both. Trust (laughs) me.
1: absolutely that's a digression, but that's what we do on this, this show. So that's why the game that was kind of the most difficult and <laughs> the most daunting could also at the same time be considered the high point kind of in a nutshell there. Obviously, Infocom continues to create games that have plots and literary illusions and could be considered bookware, but we're really not going to look at Infocom anymore outside of Hitchhikers, both because they never did quite that kind of collaboration again where they were getting together with the author to create an adaptation of their work, but also because Infocom is a company that can sustain its own episode or two. We wouldn't want to trample upon future good episode material by delving too deeply in that right now. So outside of Infocom, there were two other computer game publishers that really embraced this idea of bookware. The first of these companies was a company called Synapse, which was founded in 1981 and was one of the very first companies that really focused on the Atari 8-bit line of computers, as opposed to the Apple II or the TRS-80 or the stuff the Commodore was doing. This is a bit of a, a digression again, but just really quickly. When the Atari 8-bit computer was first released, it was released in 1979, Atari and Warner, because Warner, of course, is the parent company, thought that they wanted to have a closed system. They thought that they wanted to basically provide all of the software for that computer themselves, probably a little bit because, of course, they were a video game company first and foremost. They did the VCS, and on the VCS, they provided all the software because this was before third party publication. Obviously, you already had the idea by 1979 of third parties creating programs on computer platforms. But I think some of that console sensibility kind of leaked into what they were doing on the computer end. And so they didn't like strictly make it a closed system, but what they did is they didn't really publish manuals that gave a very good idea of what the computer did. You didn't have processor calls and Really detailed schematics of how all the parts of the computer link together and all of the kind of things that you kind of need to make a computer do anything. And since a lot of the chips in there were custom chips, it it used an off the shelf processor, but the graphics and sound chips were all custom chips created by Atari itself. It's not like there was a third party manual that you could pick up to figure out how the chips did the graphics. (laughs) It was a two-chip solution for graphics as well. You had one chip that did the backgrounds, and you had uh, the other chip did the sprites and the color for the backgrounds. So there was a complex interaction between the processor and two graphics chips. And so if you didn't have detailed manuals that kind of told you how all of that fit together, you couldn't really... Do much. So, in the first couple of years of the Atari 8 computers, there were very few third-party products made for it. Atari was obviously releasing games and word processors and productivity stuff and educational stuff and all of those areas, but there was very little third-party stuff because you couldn't get a handle on it. Later, they reversed that and they released a better manual and that allowed people to get more into it. But that's part of the reason why the Atari 8-bit computers never quite caught on as much as they should have, considering how good their technology was. And it's also why, even though the computer came out in 1979, it's not until 1981 that you have this company that becomes very well known for focusing on that computer, and that's Synapse. Uh, It was founded by uh, two guys, Ihor Wolosinko, an immigrant. I think his family was from the Ukraine, if I remember correctly. And Ken Grant, who was the more technical guy between the two.
0: Now, this Synapse isn't the same thing as the one associated
1: with Blizzard, right? Right. That's correct. When Blizzard first started, they called themselves Silicon and Synapse, or Synapse, I suppose. But uh, that's, that's a completely different company. They're not related in any way. I mean, it's the same... Obviously, they're both, you know, pulling from the idea of the brain, you know, synapses in the brain, but there's absolutely no connection of any kind. Synapse Software was founded by these two guys, Ihor Wolosinko and Ken Grant. Wolasinko, he was kind of a character, or is, I mean, he's still alive. He's kind of a character. He'd done a lot of things in his life. He had studied drama. He'd been a professional photographer, a physical therapist. He did self-help stuff involving Tibetan Buddhism. And, you know, it was the late 70s. There were some weird self-help things going on then. He got interested in linguistics and hypnosis. And all of these kind of weird things. And he was hanging out in Berkeley. And Berkeley is where a lot of the people into weird things were hanging out, you know, during the counterculture. So he was getting exposed to a lot of that kind of stuff. But, of course, Berkeley is also uh, kind of in the vicinity of Silicon Valley. So when the whole computer thing started, he was aware that that was going on. And and that was something that interested him. So he went uh, to a computer store and was looking at the computers there. And uh, he purchased an Atari 800 because of Star Raiders, which was a common story. Star Raiders was kind of the first killer computer game app. It was kind of a first-person space shooting game, kind of a precursor to your wing commanders and your X-Wings and those kind of games. It was kind of the first game of that type, and it was something that was really not possible to do at the same level of sophistication on the Apple II or on the TRS-80. And so that became kind of a a system seller for the Atari 800, even though the Atari 800 didn't have the robust library of those other computers that had Star Raiders, and they didn't because it was a game created by Atari. So he bought an 800. He fell in with a guy named Ken Grant. Like I said, he was the technical one. He was in charge of data processing at the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank. And uh, he had been starting to write a database for the 800 kind of in his spare time. He was one of these guys that was smart and savvy enough with computers that even though the company didn't release a lot of documentation, he was poking and peeking at it enough that he was kind of figuring out how everything worked and was kind of doing this database program. So they joined together and they formed a company in 1981 uh, called Synapse Software to market this uh, database program, which they called File Manager it had some issues it was buggy they kind of got it together after a little bit and then after that they really focused a lot more on games they created a lot of arcade style games i mean i say they they hired programmers that actually did most of the work but they put out a bunch of typical arcadey games which is what the Atari 800 was particularly good at because it had started life as the successor to the Atari VCS as their next video game system. Even though it came out as a computer instead, it was very good at doing those kind of video game action-y stuff. But they had some programmers on staff that wanted to do a bit more than that, that kind of got caught up in this idea of interactive fiction and, and text adventures that was coming along. and. Wanted to create their own text adventures that they thought could be better than the text adventures that were coming out from other companies like Infocom. In hindsight, that ended up being a bit arrogant because they never did really quite come up with a system that was as good as the system Infocom was using. They even named their parser BTZ, which stood for better than Zork, though the Synapse parser was never really as good as the Infocom parser that was didn't quite work out that way. But they they had aspirations to create a text adventure system that was better than what Infocom was doing. So that's what the programmers wanted to do, particularly Catherine Mataga. She uh, presented as male at the time. At the time, her name was William Mataga, but she transitioned, so she's Catherine Mataga now really wanted to do this, and another programmer named Steve Hales was very interested in doing this. So uh, they came up with the idea of, hey, let's do some text adventures. And then it was Wolosinco that, from there, was kind of like, you know, if we're going to be doing these text adventures, if we're going to be trying to outdo Infocom, let's take this to the next level by having our prose written by actual Authors, playwrights, poets. Let's make this more literary. Let's elevate the text adventure genre because there really wasn't a lot there, literary wise, at the time. And this is when they're putting this together, it's before Hitchhiker's Guide is released. Hitchhiker's Guide is probably in development by this time, but it hasn't been released yet. So there's not even Hitchhiker's Guide yet. So he had the idea of. Let's make this happen. And his idea was that he wanted to do a game by a novelist, a game by a playwright, and a game by a poet, because these are kind of different literary genres, different literary styles of writing. And he wanted to see what each kind of style of literature could bring to the concept of the text adventure. They didn't really end up getting a playwright or a novelist. I don't know if they approached people and people just weren't interested or if they never got that far. I don't know all the details there, but they did get their poet, and their poet was a guy by the name of Robert Pinsky, who was a very famous poet. He was actually the Poet Laureate of the United States for a time in the, in the 90s and 2000s, after the period of time when this game was written. But even at that time, he was a well-regarded poet. So they approached Pinsky about doing a game with them, and he was very interested in this because as a poet, he's very interested in kind of the structure of words, right? Because, I mean, there's poetry is the most structured form of writing. And I think, from what I can tell from interviews and whatnot, Pinsky was very interested in the idea of how interactivity kind of completely alters... The structure of how you approach a literary work. And so he was very enthusiastic about this idea and was brought on board. And uh, this was, again, a true collaboration in this case. Steve Hales was the programmer, but the writing was done by Penske, and he was very enthusiastically contributing the writing. It was actually kind of interesting because part of what Intrigued Pinsky about the idea of doing a game is that it was entertainment. He wanted it to have a literary quality to it. He wanted it to be a bit lyrical, but he wanted it to resonate as an entertainment property, not as some great work of inscrutable art. And so he was kind of making it more lowbrow, more game like. And Wolicinko had really been hoping that he would make it more literary and less like other games. So there was a bit of a, a mismatch there. I mean, it didn't really hurt the final product or anything. It's just kind of funny. To think about how the game guys were just amazed and wonderful, and hey, we're going to have some great highbrow literature thing because we're getting literature people. And then the literature guy, the poet, is like, oh my God, this is great. It's a game. I can kind of make it all entertainment and mass market instead of all this highbrow literary stuff. It's almost like they enjoyed having something different from their standard baseline. Exactly. Exactly. They created a game. Pinsky and Hales created a game together called Mind Wheel. That's a Pretty interesting game. I mean, I I don't really play text adventures. So, uh, you know, as a caveat, I'm largely going off what other people say when I talk about stuff like that. But from what I understand, it's a very interesting game because it's got the literary chops. I mean, it's definitely more well written than most of the games of the time. But Hales is a, is a pretty good programmer, too, so it's, it's got a decent enough puzzles and whatnot mixed in there as well. It strikes kind of a decent balance between literary aspiration and game. It's got a very lofty kind of literary artistic premise to the game. Basically, humanity's in kind of a bad state and everything's falling apart. We're headed swiftly towards the apocalypse at some point in the future, and you're basically trying to unlock the wisdom of humanity. It's more about the journey and the exploration than it's about logical plot, but basically you're going through four minds. From the past. It's like a computer simulation of these people's minds or whatever. A rock star, a scientist, a poet, uh, a poet that is definitely based on uh, Pinsky himself. And by moving through these minds and discovering aspects of these people through these minds, you end up finding this kind of mysterious being called the Cave Master, who was like the first human that developed important things like making fire and. Cave paintings and all of this early stuff that allowed us to start becoming humans instead of creatures or whatever. I thought it was the Greek Titan Prometheus who was supposed to bring us fire from the gods. (laughs) Yes. And uh, he has this item called the Wheel of Wisdom. That's the mind wheel of the title that can apparently be used to save humankind. Now, if all of that sounded like it made almost no sense and I was like, on a really bad acid trip there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to explain for a reason, and it's not just hard to explain because I haven't engaged with it much personally. It's very surrealistic. It's more about impressions and imagery and uh, philosophy than it is about coherent plot. Very much something that a poet <laughs> would come up with, I think.
0: It strikes me as very philosophical, very abstract, something that You need to ruminate on in order to really understand what it's trying to communicate.
1: Right. So that was another 1984 game, Mind Wheel. And it's another example of this kind of, let's take the text adventure, but get a literary personality involved and kind of elevate it and turn it into something else. There was also a companion novel kind of, I think, setting the stage for the story Uh, Which was actually a real point of contention. Well, Asenko wanted that because he was seeing this as kind of a merging of computer gaming and literary stuff. And so, you know, you have a computer program and a book kind of complementing each other. Pinsky had absolutely no interest in that at all. He thought it was kind of dumb. I mean, he was here to make a computer game and he was interested in the uh, ways that a computer could be used to change the way we interact with literature or whatever. And so he didn't want to have anything to do with a novel. But, uh, you know, there was this 100-page thing. Pinsky may have written some of it. He may not have written any of it. It's not clear. Some people claim he wrote part of it. Some people don't. It's kind of confusing. But I don't think he probably wrote most of it, because certainly the literary quality is not nearly the same as the text within the game itself. So... There was kind of that throw in that didn't work very well. That's mind wheel. And I guess mind wheel is a good example of what the genre was aspiring to, because the literary sides and the puzzle solving sides come together pretty well. One of the more interesting puzzles is you actually have to create a sonnet. There are words scattered around the mind, uh, I think, of the poet, and you kind of gather words, and then you have to fit them into the form and meter of the sonnet and craft a complete sonnet to advance. So that's kind of an interesting way of bringing in literary structure and learning a little bit about how poetry works and combining that with the idea of an adventure game puzzle. So, you know, it wasn't as successful as Hitchhiker's Guide as a commercial product, but, you know, it was an interesting attempt nonetheless. The other major company that really got involved in this whole bookware concept was the company called Spinnaker Software. Spinnaker was a very different kind of company from Synapse. Spinnaker was part of the new wave of companies that kind of appeared in the 1982 and 1983 period on computer platforms. And we've talked about this before, how in the early days you had enthusiasts and hobbyists that were kind of getting together and like, well, I've made a program or I've made a game. I'll form a company, maybe with a friend of mine who's a little bit better on the business side of things, and we'll sell our products, and yeah, it'll be great. And that's kind of how companies like Broderbund and Online Systems, which became Sierra, and uh, Synapse even came together. It's like they became businesses But they weren't businessmen necessarily doing this. And then in 82, 83, you got a new wave of companies. You got Electronic Arts that was formed by a bunch of Stanford MBAs and was really focused on business. You had Activision, which had been previously formed, but which had been focusing on the Atari VCS and was now moving into the uh, computer game space and had a lot of kind of more business people involved in it, even though it was, of course, founded by programmers then you had Spinnaker Software, which was founded along the same ideals. It was founded by two friends named Bill Bowman and C. David Seuss, who were Harvard Business School grads and business consultants. They weren't strictly computer people. I mean, they they really didn't engage with computers in the same way that a, that a Ken Williams or even an Ihor Willisinko did. But they saw a niche that they could get into because they realized that when the IBM PC arrived in 1981 that the microcomputer was something that was probably going to become more and more and more ingrained in people's lives and more a part of people's lives. That was kind of the symbol that the computer was going to become something that everybody used and interacted with. And so they saw a niche that they felt was being underserved, which was educational products, educational games, what we would call edutainment today, and thought that they could fill this gap. And so that's what Spinnaker was created to be, was to be kind of an educational company. And then they were approached by a very interesting individual named Byron Price, who did some educational product for them because they were contracting with outside guys. They were not programmers themselves. And Price had been involved in some very interesting projects through a company that he founded called Byron Price Visual Publications in 1974 while he was a film school student. He founded this publishing company, and he wanted to expand the idea of what a book could be he was creating graphic novels before the mainstream comic book publishers like marvel or dc really understood what a graphic novel was a full like novel-sized comic book you know essentially instead of you know individual monthly issues graphics novels like moss
0: and watchmen and the killing joke
1: Yep. well i mean That's a little shorter, but yeah. I'm sure there's plenty of others out there. And he did some, he co-authored a book with Harlan Ellison with 3D pictures. So you could put on your 3D graphics and the illustrations and it would be 3D. And he created a kind of choose your own adventure variant. Choose your own adventure already existed by this time where you had to kind of solve puzzles to advance. So it wasn't just when you got to the end of the page, if you want to do this, go to page this. If you want to do that, go to page that. There were actually puzzles presented, and it was only through solving the puzzles that you would figure out how the story continued past that point. So he was doing all of this stuff in the literary world, kind of messing with the formula. So the whole interactive fiction thing and the whole text adventure thing on computers really appealed to him because this was another medium where you could perhaps subvert the idea of what a literary work could be and change it and alter it, and of course, through interactivity in this case. And he also had a lot of contacts in the publishing world. He'd collaborated with a lot of science fiction authors like Asimov and Harlan Ellison, Bradbury, Clark. He'd collaborated with a lot of these people. So he had contacts on that side of the world. And he got involved with Spinnaker doing some educational stuff, so we had contacts there. And so he's the one that kind of brought this together and recommended to the Spinnaker people that they create a line of interactive fiction bookware. They created a new brand for it uh, called Tellarium and got into this business of bookware. It was kind of uneven. So the Tellarium stuff really shows the limitations, I think, of bookware and the re- some of the reasons why bookware was ultimately not successful. Where this mysterious ship shows up in our solar system and then people go up to investigate and figure out what the heck's going on with this thing. Arthur C. Clarke was not really involved at all. Uh, This was not the same kind of collaboration that you had with Penske or with Douglas Adams. He gave them permission to use his story, but he probably didn't even give any ideas to creating the game itself. Rendezvous with Rama's problem is really the same problem found in most of these adaptations, which is that when you have something like a novel, where you have a lot of characters, when you have a lot of settings, when you have a lot of background and and information and stuff that can happen. You have two basic choices. You can just basically follow the plot of the story, in which case, where comes the fun and the interactivity? Because all you're doing is trying to manipulate a parser to create the exact same result that already happened in a book or a story that's already been released. Or you can try to deviate from that story, but in that case, you get into a situation where it's just too complex. Even a novel that has a half dozen characters in it, even like a relatively simple novel, if you're representing all of those characters in all of those settings, you have to account for every possibility. A text adventure is a closed system, but it's a closed system where you're typing in commands. Unless you want every other thing that the person types in to be, I don't understand what you're saying, or I can't do that, which immediately becomes frustrating to the player and makes it feel like there's nothing going on in this game. You have to account for a lot of different player actions, which has a ripple effect of meaning you have to figure out, okay, if the character does this, if the character goes left instead of goes right, as in the book, how does that change how this character's story turns out? How does that change how this character's story turns out? You know, it's a butterfly effect, essentially. Yes, it's very much
0: like a choose-your-own-adventure where there are many, many, many more permutations than you can properly account for. You gave an example there of half a dozen characters interacting. If I were to just give a rose to just one of those characters, well, you got to account for all five of those other characters I could have given that rose to. So what do we do in that case? Right. In a real game, it's going to be Mm -hmm. a lot, lot worse with so many different choices. Keep in mind, we're still talking about computers that are very, very low memory,
1: so they can't even hold that many permutations. So it's basically impossible. You can't really do a true interactive literary experience. You have to keep it fairly linear. And so when you're adapting a pre-existing story like Rendezvous with Rama, What ends up happening is that you end up narrowly feeding the player through the existing story and just having him solve puzzles that serve as obstacles to getting to the next part of the story. And you end up with what was the point, (laughs) you know, because the story already exists. You know, the story is already out there. What was the point in experiencing the story with some puzzles thrown in as opposed to just reading the story?
0: It has a lot more detracted entertainment value that is going on. Yeah, I could either have an adventure game set in the story scenery and really enjoy that, or I could sit down and read the book and enjoy the story and character development. Right. But when I combine both of them together, that is when we really have problems.
1: Right. Now, with something like Hitchhiker's Guide, which did largely follow the plot... It was saved by the fact that Steve Moretzky and Douglas Adams are very clever and very funny people. They created some puzzles that were fun to experience just on their own. The whole, the whole metaphysical concept of tea versus no tea, or having a parser that's lying to you. You know, these kind of things kind of elevate it so that even though you're following a lot of the story, you're still getting something new and interesting out of it. A game like Rendezvous Rama didn't have the same level of author collaboration, so you're not getting that kind of literary side of it to kind of save you from the linearity of it. So that one didn't work so well. They did a little better with their next game. They did a Fahrenheit 451 game, the, the classic Ray Bradbury novel. But in this case, a couple of things were different. First, Ray was slightly more involved And I do want to put an emphasis on the word slightly. This was not a Douglas Adams or Robert Pinsky style collaboration. He provided some ideas. He also did some promotion for the game, but he wasn't heavily involved in creating the game. But in Fahrenheit 451, they made it a sequel to the book rather than a playthrough of the book. And so that kind of saved it, made it more interesting, allowed it to exist in its own space without feeling redundant. Unfortunately, it has a terrible parser. You know, that's the other side of things. The really hard part about doing a good bookware product is that it's hard to find a really good writer, but it's also hard to craft a really good parser. Creating a parser that actually works well is probably one of the hardest tasks in programming a video game. I mean, trying to program complex AI is certainly even harder than that. uh, I mean, a parser is kind of, in a way, a limited form of artificial intelligence. But, I mean, compared to programming animations or physics or some of the stuff that goes into a graphical game, crafting a parser that really works is probably just as hard, if not harder, than some of that. Because you have to take into account the entirety of the human language with its thousands upon thousands upon thousands of words. Try to narrow that down and figure out and get inside the player's head and think about which words the player is most likely to use to accomplish particular actions. Get those noun-verb pairings together, but then also craft a parser that will still give you the result if your player gets crazy and types a complex sentence of 15 words when a four-word sentence would do that can actually isolate the important words from the unimportant words and still get the desired result and not give that player the dreaded, I don't understand what you mean message. That's hard.
0: It is hard, and as I said before, it is akin to making your own programming language or compiler. There's a reason there's so many programming languages that seem to come out every single day, and we cannot seem to make up our minds on which one we want to actually use. Part of the reason for that is all of the various things that need to be special cases. Lula comes to mind as an example. It is really, really hard to come up with a parser that is universal. There is a reason that we have different languages for different goals. C, C++, Python, Mathematica, Lula, so on and so forth. There are so many languages out there. It becomes a nightmare to just try to understand it all. We say the human language here, but really what we mean is the English language in the Western culture. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine the horrors of just trying to understand this in German, French, Chinese, Japanese, Arabic, any other language. It's going to be such a challenge
1: and so many trials and tribulations to really get it to work. Absolutely. That's the Tellarium line. I mean, they did a couple of other games as well. It was never really all of that successful. It kind of stands as an example of why merging together literary aspirations and programming aspirations and game aspirations is very hard. That's a very unstable tripod, and it's one that's almost impossible to get to work right. The one final game that I kind of want to cover, which is interesting. So Robert Pinsky is probably the biggest literary figure that ever got involved in this whole bookware thing. He became a poet laureate. I mean, poetry doesn't necessarily have the mainstream pop appeal as some other things. Becoming poet laureate's a pretty big deal. So he's probably the biggest literary figure. After that, you know, the next two biggest would be Douglas Adams and then a science fiction writer named Thomas Dish. Thomas Dish, I don't think, is a very well-known science fiction author today, but he was part of a new wave of science fiction authors that appeared in the mid-1960s. Roger Zelazny was probably the, the biggest one of this group, but Dish was amongst this group as well, who burst onto the scene with kind of a new, more, I don't know how exactly to put it, but less plot-driven science fiction. And... More character-driven, they kind of really elevated science fiction in a way, with kind of more realistic and more grounded characters and plots and ideas, even as they still had futuristic stuff going on as well. Less pulpy, really. And Dish was one of these guys, but he was kind of the darkest of the group. He really got into the whole dystopian thing and the whole humanity is doomed, and the future is not going to be this great utopia. I mean, he was, you know, dystopian stuff is is far more common now, but when he was writing in the 60s and 70s, I think there was a lot more of a, a, a hopeful bent to science fiction, or at least, even if not hopeful, at least this idea that the future was going to be this shining, bright, futuristic, technologically amazing place, as opposed to some kind of destroyed hellscape. (laughs) He didn't quite hit the same commercial heights of his Zelazny or some of the others that were coming along in that period. And by 1980, he was kind of washed up as a science fiction author just because his kind of unrelentingly bleak way of depicting the future was really no longer interesting (laughs) to people. I mean, it just, depression doesn't often sell. He was kind of at a crossroads in his career, and at this time, Harper and Rowe, another one of these big publishers, was thinking of getting into this whole bookware thing because you know, after games like Mind Wheel and Hitchhiker's Guide came out, it's like, oh wow, you know, there really could be something here. This could be the new wave of literature, and we as book publishers need to be involved in that. So, Harper and Row's contracted Dish to create. An interactive fiction game. And again, Dish was actually kind of interested in this because he also saw it as a way to really force the reader to engage with the text. Because the idea of an interactive fiction game is you're looking for clues within what the game is telling you, what the game is presenting to you in text form. And trying to parse those clues in order to figure out what you have to do next. So it requires a close engagement with the text, even closer than what you get from reading a novel, because potentially every word could matter. And he kind of liked this idea of the text itself, the words itself being that important. And uh, forcing the the uh, reader to really do a deep read of what you've put on the page. So he was kind of on board with this idea, and he got very enthusiastic about it. And He actually wrote a massive 450-page script for this game and trying to take into account everything that might happen because we were talking before about that butterfly effect. So he was approaching this from the idea of let me make this a little more varied and let me figure out how this would all fit together and did a 450-page script. Now, he's a man who obviously gets how bookware is supposed to work. He does, uh, absolutely. Unfortunately, in a mid-1980s computer, you could never, ever, ever program a game based on a 450-page script. Harper and Rose came at this in the wrong direction, literally, because they commissioned the script. They commissioned the author first before they commissioned anyone to do the program. Their idea was go and write the story for this thing, turn it into us, and then we'll give it to a programmer to turn it into a game. That was a huge mistake. Our other successful collaborations here, the Moretsky adams collaboration, the Penske-Hales collaboration, those worked because the programmer was working side-by-side with the author. So as the author was developing the text and developing the story, the programmer was there to say, that's a great idea, but remember what we're working with here, and I think you're going to have to tweak this or take out this to make it fit within the bounds of our program. That's not what happened here. Dish turns into a 450-page script, and then Harper & Rose turns around and contracts a small New Jersey company called Cognetics, To turn this 450-page script into a game, and they're basically like, what am I supposed to do with this? Program it into a game over the span of 30 discs. (laughs) (laughs) So, it was literally impossible. You could not create the entire gamescape that Dish envisioned within the computer platforms of the time. It was impossible. Amnesia had to be cut and cut and cut and cut and cut. Down. This brings up the other kind of big problem. We talked about the linearity problem of bookware. The other problem with bookware is that bookware often tried to create extensive worlds, what we would today call open worlds. You could really never call a text adventure game an open world because any text adventure game, it's, it's kind of inherent to the idea of programming that each spot that you're at is an individual room from the point of view of the program, and you have to move from room to room to room. There's not free-form movement through a text adventure. That's impossible because you need the program to describe where you're at and where you can go at at every juncture. But in terms of scope, it's a similar idea to an open world. And there are several text adventure or bookware properties that tried to do that to create a true open world, and Amnesia was one of these. Dish loved Manhattan. Where he lived. And he wanted to create a complete simulation of the city that he loved. And so he recreated block by block all of Manhattan south of 110th Street, like the entirety of Manhattan. That's insane. 650 streets, 4,000 locations. That is so not fitting on 30 discs. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't, right? So the only way you can do it, and it's the way it's implemented in the game, is that you have all of these spaces be generic, be nothing there. You know, you just, you reuse text constantly. Because, you know, I mean, adding, having 4,000 locations, I mean, that's just 4,000 numbers in memory or whatever. That's not really a lot of memory to have 4,000 rooms. Where the memory burden comes in is when you start, making each of these rooms unique and having unique features and unique text and unique this and unique that. That's where your memory drain is. They followed the instructions of Dish in this sense, and they recreated that whole area of Manhattan. But the vast majority of it has nothing in it at all. You're just flipping through generic rooms with generic descriptions with nothing to do in them. It's empty. It makes the whole game feel sparsely populated and empty. I mean, it's just, what was the point of that? A text adventure lives and dies by description and interaction. So if you bloat your text adventure so much that most of it has nothing to read or nothing to interact with, then what have you done?
0: (laughs) They really needed a programmer to sit down with Dish and go... Hey, we can't have all of these blank generic rooms. We need to tear this down to a few city blocks and just have a taxi go back and forth between key locations. We can't have the player going through 30 rooms of, and you're on a street. There are people. There are some more street with more people. Oh, look, another
1: street with people. Yeah. Oh, did I mention a street with people in it? Exactly. So it, it's it's a bit of a mess. I mean, there's an interesting enough story at its heart. I mean, it's kind of a futuristic kind of, I think, a little cyberpunkish, almost kind of setting. And you've woken up with amnesia in a seedy hotel room. You know, it's kind of noirish. You don't remember anything, but someone's out there is trying to kill you, and you're wanted for murder in the state of Texas, and you don't know why. And so you have to go and figure out who you are and what happened and. Yeah, it's an interesting premise. It's an interesting story, but it's completely ruined by this world that is just big and empty because he made too big of a script and uh, then it had to be uh, cut, cut, cut and bastardized to get it to fit into uh, an entertainment program. So. The whole thing ended up taking a long time and costing a lot of money. Harper and Rose decided they didn't want anything to do with this. They decided, we're not doing this. No, go away. So, actually, Electronic Arts of all companies ends up being the ones to publish it. Uh, it's the only real text adventure that they ever did, because <laughs> certainly Electronic Arts wasn't based around text adventures. So, it, it came out in 1986, but was definitely a clunky implementation. Yeah, that's amnesia, uh, another example of why this whole bookware thing just doesn't always work very well, because most games either take the rendezvous with Rama approach of a narrow and linear adaptation of a story, so you wonder why they're bothering, or you take the amnesia approach of let's make it huge and everything, but then you end up with something empty because you can't really fit all of that hugeness into a computer of the time.
0: Or it's mind boggling hard like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.
1: Sure, but yeah, absolutely. Though that's kind of one of the perils of text adventures in general. (laughs) That's definitely one of the harder ones, though. It is kind of amazing to think that the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy game
0: was one of the ones that struck the best balance, where you didn't feel railroaded and you didn't have an endless space to explore.
1: Yeah, and I mean it. It kind of linearly follows the story, but it breaks away from the story just enough. To keep your interest going, and it has some clever dialogue and some clever puzzles. And, uh, you know, being a true collaboration uh, between the two individuals helped a lot. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the pinnacle of what to do. And maybe Rendezvous with Rama and Amnesia are kind of the <laughs> nadir of what you don't do. So, where does that leaf book wear? Well, by 1986, you kind of had a situation where the computer market had really changed. Those kind of early adopters that were interested in this text-based stuff and interested in puzzle solving and that kind of thing are kind of giving way. You had a a kind of shakeout in the industry in 84 and 85. Now you've got the Commodore 64 is kind of the principal computer game platform, which is more action-oriented. It's more sprite-based. Graphical. Yeah, it's more graphical course pretty soon after that you have the nintendo entertainment system starting to come in and it's pushing everything in a more action-based direction and is kind of causing the computer game market to collapse a little bit uh you kind of have a refocusing synapse is bought out by broderbund and the text adventures never really sell well for them so they kind of quietly discontinue that Spinnaker kind of gets away from their original edutainment stuff and kind of locks into the low-end PC market, which was exemplified especially by the Tandy 1000, which were PCs that were a little cheaper than the prime business models and had a little more multimedia capability, so they had a little more capability as a game machine or a home productivity machine and started really focusing on that and quietly killed off their bookware lines. Infocom, of course, is getting into financial difficulty in this period because people are going more towards graphics and away from text. So the whole bookware thing just fades away. There's no spectacular collapse of it. But after 1986, it's pretty much gone. I mean, it was really something that was probably never going to happen. I mean, Interactive movies failed in the sense that having actors on screen that you have limited interactivity with doesn't work very well. But, I mean, we still make interactive movies today, so to speak. It's just that they're far more interactive because they're with polygonal characters that are nearing photorealism. So, I mean, a lot of what we do today is, in that sense, an interactive movie. I mean, they don't follow the conventions of an interactive movie genre, but... The idea of merging story and interactivity together in a graphical medium is, is what most video games are about today. Bookware was really something that was never going to be a thing. Once the computer reached a certain level of graphical sophistication, really it's a visual medium. It was going to go visual. It wasn't going to stay in books. There's nothing inherently necessarily valuable about not having graphics. Some people would probably disagree with me about that. So, yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of fades out at that point. But it's, it's kind of interesting that for this brief period of time, there was this idea that, hey, this is going to be the future of literature and we all need to get involved. Within two years, they figured out, oh, wait, we were wrong. And it was done. More
0: of a historical footnote than anything. Absolutely.
1: But we're all about those historical footnotes here at They Create Worlds.
0: That's right. So what historical footnote shall we delve into in our next episode? Well, now that we've
1: delved into this whole literary thing, why don't we move back towards a more action-based area of the industry? One of the major computer game publishers that we haven't covered at all yet, but we have mentioned many, many times in passing, is Epix. Epix is kind of interesting because it's one of these companies that bridged the gap Between the pre- and post-crash computer game industry, pre- and post-video game crash video game industry, but kind of did it in the opposite order. Because there were a lot of companies doing arcadey action games on computer platforms before the video game crash, and then after the video game crash, things became more cerebral, and and more cerebral games like role-playing games became the primary form of entertainment on computer platforms, and the action games were not as prominent. As always, I'm only talking about the United States here. I realize that in Europe there were a whole host of popular action games on computer platforms. Whereas Epic started out doing the more cerebral games like RPGs and whatnot before the crash and then after the crash became more of an action game company but actually made it work for them, (laughs) unlike a lot of companies in that period. So it's kind of a weird switcheroo there. Um, So, yeah, why don't we finally uh, turn our attention to uh, Epic's? And
0: in this case, we mean Epic, not Epic's. So if you're confused by that, it's E-P-Y-X is what we'll be talking about, not E-P-I-C. So I guess that's a good name for the episode. Epics, not epics. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com theycreateworlds Intro music is Airplane Mode by josh woodward found at joshwoodwardcom song airplane mode used under a creative commons attribution license outro music is bacterial love by rolla music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a creative commons attribution license